Our Father, we do thank you for the way that your word strengthens us, the way it often chastises us and disciplines us and convicts us in a way that no other source can. Your word, Lord, has all authority over our lives because you have all authority over our lives. And so we come humbly to your word in a spirit of submission, asking, Lord, that you would bring about change in our lives through the study of your word, that Christ would be glorified in our lives. Use this time to strengthen us and to glorify Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to the book of John, the gospel according to John. We'll be looking at uh, chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. One of the reasons I wanted to have a prayer service tonight is because we just live in a time of massive confusion. Massive confusion. I don't know how a society can prepare for an age that they would call the age of information. How do you prepare for an abundance, an overwhelming abundance of information coming at an entire society? Uh, But something that has happened in the course of the age of information is what we call fake news. Of course, fake news is exactly what it sounds like. It's misinformation. Uh, in an age that we've called the information age, it's no surprise that there would be an abundance of false information. Just because we call it the age of information doesn't mean all that information is true, right? There's a lot of false information. In fact, there are more false things uh, possible than true things. Look at it this way. How many answers are there for two plus two? One. How many wrong answers are there? (laughs) I mean, infinity. There's an infinite number of, of possible wrong answers for any truth. Now, sometimes fake news is a hoax. Uh, somebody just playing a prank. Uh, sometimes it's due to people hating what's true, not liking what is true, and so uh, they try to counter that truth with half-truths and, and outright lies. And sometimes it's because people just don't know what is true and what is false. Now, you might think that this alone would create an abundance of confusion, but consider how bent out of shape people get uh, about fake news in light of the fact that people are also, uh, by and large, rejecting the idea of absolute truth. There's this idea out there that nothing is really true, and so if nothing is actually literally, absolutely true, how can you get upset about fake news? You can't. But that just goes to show how confused society is right now. And all of this has contributed to the fact that this, is, this age of, of information is just as confusing as, as any age that the world has ever been through. And so I suppose that it shouldn't be terribly surprising when you consider how much confusion there is out there. It shouldn't be terribly surprising to look at the church today and to see how much confusion there is about the gospel, 
how much confusion there is about the gospel. I mean, think about all the different flavors, if you will, and I use that term very loosely because really there aren't different flavors of Christianity. I mean, you've got people who think that God wants you to be materially rich and physically healthy, and you can be if you just have enough faith, and of course you express that faith in how much you give uh, financially to a certain ministry. That's, that's a lie. That is not true at all. That's not biblical at all. Uh, then you've got the charlatans who are out there faking miracles and promoting the idea that the apostolic gifts are still for the church today. Um, again, promoting the idea that if you just have enough faith, you can do these miracles too. And of course, once again, the expression of that faith is money. Totally not biblical. Totally unbiblical. That's, that is a lie. That's, that's fake news. Uh, then you've got people who think that God is still speaking today apart from the Holy Scriptures, the, the canonized Scriptures. You've got people who think that the church needs to make abortion or, or reconciliation or some other social problem the main focus. Not that, we, not that we should just be concerned about them, but that they should be primary. They should be our first concern in our day and age. That's not true either. The gospel is our primary concern. And you've got people who just want church to be a, a weekly pep talk, something that, that gives them some encouragement and, and a self-esteem boost to get them through the week. I mean, this is a time in history when there is just so much confusion in the culture at large and even in the church when it comes to things as basic, as fundamental, and as necessary as the gospel and the purpose of the church. And friends, this is why we have to have a high view of Scripture. Because when the world is changing and there's so much confusion out there, there's one thing that doesn't change, and that is the Word of God, because God Himself does not change. And so we have to have a high view of Scripture. It eliminates confusion when we look to Scripture alone as our guide. It's like an anchor in a storm. Now, we're going to be looking at John today, and we'll be looking at John the Baptist specifically And John the Baptist was undoubtedly perceived by the religious leaders and the culture of his time as somebody who was very confused. I mean, we're talking about a guy who lived out in the wilderness. Uh, He didn't fit the mold. He didn't blend in. Uh, You know, he lived in the wilderness. He preached this message of repentance, baptizing even Jews in the Jordan River, which was an act that was viewed by the religious community and and the religious leaders as unnecessary. And they probably even thought that it was divisive, uh, since in their minds, baptism was only necessary for Gentiles if a Gentile wanted to come into the Jewish community. So in the minds of the Pharisees, in the minds of of the religious leaders, John the Baptist was heralding fake news. He wasn't doing what was true. He wasn't doing what was right in in their minds. Of course, they were the ones who was mistaken, because as far as Jesus was concerned, um, John the Baptist was actually the the greatest of all the prophets. We've We've seen him say that, but beyond that, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. He said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Consider that for a second. Consider what Jesus is saying there. He's saying, not only is John the Baptist the greatest of the prophets, but he's the greatest man born 
born in a natural sense, so other than Jesus, but he's the greatest man who's ever lived, the greatest person who's ever lived. John was not confused. He wasn't confused. The, the Pharisees were confused. John was not conf- confused. In fact, he was crystal clear on the most important things. And what we saw in the previous passage of this text is that he knew that he was neither the Messiah nor Elijah nor this prophet whom the, uh, the Jews were expecting. It, that was actually Jesus. That was uh, the prophet that Moses had foretold. They, they, re- they thought that there was a difference between the Messiah and this prophet, but no, Jesus was that prophet. But we should remember that the point of the encounter that he had with the, the, the delegation committee that was sent by the Pharisees in the previous passage was that John knew who he was and that he knew who he was because he knew who God was. And he knew who God was because he knew who Jesus was. And similarly, we can't know the most fundamental, the most elementary things about ourselves and our own identity until we know God, and we cannot know God until we know Christ by faith. So there's another encounter, a second encounter, that John is going to tell us about. John, the author, is going to tell us about, which happened on the second day, which happened the day after he had this conversation with this committee that was sent by the religious leaders. And that's what we'll be looking at today as we look at John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. And the point of this passage is simple. It's that as people who believe in Jesus, as people who know Jesus, one of our primary responsibilities is to point people to Jesus. As people who know Jesus, one of our primary responsibilities in life is to point others to Jesus. So, Having told us about John the Baptist's conversation, or or you might say confrontation, with this committee in in which John denied that he was the light, we'll now uh, learn the second thing that John the Baptist did. He testified about the true light, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, back in in the middle of John chapter 1, we learned uh, that there were three things he did. He uh, denied that he was the light. He testified to the light. That's what we're looking at today. And the third thing is, uh, he did that in order that people would believe uh, in the Lord Jesus. So let's look at the encounter uh, that John, the author, tells us happened on the second day in its entirety. We'll look at the whole passage, and then we'll spend some time looking at the significance and the application of it. So starting in verse 29, this is what we read. It says, the next day, he, referring back to John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The text starts out by saying, when this happened. 
It happened the next day, the second day, the day after his confrontation with uh, the religious leaders, the priests and the Levites who had been sent by the Pharisees to figure out exactly what John the Baptist was up to as he was uh, baptizing people out on the banks of the Jordan River. Now remember that John the author is going to go through seven days. He's going through the seven days that lead up to Jesus' ministry, which is yet another parallel that John makes with the creation account from Genesis chapter 1. He's got all kinds of parallels between John chapter 1 and and Genesis chapter 1. So this is day two. This is day two. And on this day, it's not the delegation that John sees Now, he was apparently out on the banks of the Jordan River spending time with his students, spending time with his disciples and and, and his followers. Uh, Maybe he was out there doing baptisms, as he uh, commonly did. That's why we call him John the Baptist. Uh, When he looks up and he sees Jesus, Jesus is walking somewhere nearby. But what's Jesus doing out there? Well, apparently John the author is actually kind of making an assumption here. He's assuming that we're familiar with the baptism account of, of Jesus by John the Baptist. Uh, you can read of that in, uh, in the other Gospels. Uh, for example, in, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, we read this. We read, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. Verse 14, but John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, said, answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So this is how John knows. This is how John knows who Jesus is, because of what he had experienced. Now you might be wondering, what in the world was Jesus getting baptized for? I mean, for us, it's one thing. For people, uh, for, for, for sinners... It's, it's one thing. We, we do it, uh, they were doing it with John as a sign of repentance. Today we do it as a sign of identifying with Christ. But John the Baptist was wondering the same thing. What is Jesus being baptized by me for is what he was thinking. Uh, because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And Jesus was fully man, yes, but he was also fully God. And God not only does not sin, but God can not sin. The scriptures don't tell us that God doesn't lie, although it's true that God does not lie. No, they say that he cannot lie. In fact, Hebrews 6.18 says it is impossible for God to lie. Why is it impossible for God to lie? Because he's truth. Because it is totally outside of his nature to lie. He's good. He's righteous, and so outside of his, by, by nature, by the essence of his nature, and so doing anything outside of his nature, he cannot do. So uh, he can't lie for the same reason that a fish can't live outside of water. So Jesus, being fully God, was sinless. There was nothing for him to repent of. And so we know that he was sinless, by the way. Uh, one, one testimony of this is the voice of the Father coming down from heaven as Jesus was coming out of the water, expressing his pleasure with Christ, his Son. Uh, 
So why was Jesus out there being baptized? Well, one answer is that it, it was his way of identifying with those he came to save, which is kind of, uh, kind of fitting, kind of ironic in a way, uh, because we identify with Christ by, baptizing, uh, our, by being baptized ourselves, and he identifies with us in being baptized also. A second reason is that he told John, uh, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I think this is the fuller answer for why Jesus was being baptized. It's a fulfillment of something that was required by the law. To understand this, we should understand that the parents of John the Baptist were both in the line, the priestly line of Aaron. Now, what do priests do? They do a lot of things. But one of the things that the priest had to do that nobody else was qualified to do was to present sacrifices to the Lord. So John the Baptist's baptism of Jesus can thus be seen as a presentation of the once and for all ultimate sacrifice by a priest from the line of Aaron, something that John the Baptist was qualified to do. So after, uh, after Jesus was baptized, what happened? Well, if you read the other Gospels, you realize that Jesus immediately after his baptism goes into the wilderness where he would be tempted for 40 days. So what we need to understand is that as John is teaching his disciples and he looks up to see Jesus, Jesus is returning from 40 days of being tempted. And John immediately proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he reflects on and recalls uh, for his disciples what had happened, what he had personally witnessed 40 days earlier when he had baptized Jesus. And he calls him the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Now this is a a, a new title. There there wasn't a a Lamb of God. Um, You don't find that title anywhere in the Old Testament. There had been a lot of titles ascribed to the Messiah in the Old Testament. But God had appointed John the Baptist specifically to be the one to introduce this blessed title. Now, the idea of a sacrificial lamb, you can find that in the Old Testament. I mean, you can find it throughout the Old Testament, right? If you go back to Genesis chapter 22, you find Abraham and Isaac going up to Mount Moriah to offer sacrifices unto the Lord. And once they get there, Isaac looks around and he says, Huh, we've got wood, we've got fire, but we don't have a sacrifice. So he asks his father, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And that's a question that echoes throughout the Old Testament. We see that question echoed in the book of Exodus where the Hebrew people were instructed to put the blood of a sacrificed, unblemished lamb on their doorposts and those whose houses were covered by the blood of the lamb uh, would be safe when the angel of death came through. They were to understand that the death of an innocent, unblemished lamb was necessary for their salvation. And this event was to be remembered annually at the time of Passover. Uh, And Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah, spoke of the coming Messiah as a lamb, but only insofar as he would be like a lamb. He wrote in uh, chapter 53, verses 7 to 8, speaking of the Messiah, uh, in the past tense, which kind of indicates that this is as good as done. 
he writes, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. So Isaiah is saying, the lamb is coming. If the question is, where is the lamb? Isaiah is saying, the lamb is coming. He's coming. And of course, that question was answered when Isaac asked it by Abraham, who told Isaac, God will provide the lamb. And while in a, a, in a temporal sense for them, in their situation, God did provide them with a literal ram uh, for Abraham and Isaac to sacrifice on Mount Moriah, it didn't actually satisfy God's justice once and for all. And so what you find in, in the law is what is required is morning and evening sacrifices of lambs, that these lambs were being slaughtered and sacrificed unto God for the atonement of sin over and over and over because there was no one lamb who could take away the sin of the world. There was no one lamb who could atone for sin once and for all. And so they did it morning and evening. And yet, the blood of animals never took away sin. It never satisfied God's justice. Rather, what it did is it reminded people that the wage of sin is death. And it foreshadowed the need for a lamb who would atone for sin once and for all. So the question, where is the lamb, is finally being answered in this verse, in this passage. As John the Baptist looks up, he beholds Christ and he emphatically proclaims, behold, there it is. There is the lamb of God. Now John realized that all the sacrifices that would be necessary for satisfying the justice of God once and for all would be fulfilled in this lamb, in the lamb that God had provided, and that Jesus would be the one who would bear the sin and the iniquity and the wrath that was due to his people. Now when we understand how significant this title was, the Lamb of God, we understand what the big deal about Christmas is. We understand what the big deal about the incarnation is. We see and appreciate the beauty of a season in which we reflect on the second person of the Trinity taking on flesh and dwelling among men. We understand why it is that Jesus came. He came to teach, yes, but he didn't only come to teach. He came to do more than that. He came to uh, give us an example of true practical holiness. Yes, absolutely, fulfilling the demands of, of Moses, but he came to do more than just that. Ultimately, his purpose was to atone for sin once and for all. A few years ago, uh, some of you were here, my Christmas message was titled, Christmas Means War which was kind of meant a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's also very serious. It sounds funny because we normally associate Christmas with peace, right? And it is about peace. It's about peace with God, but in order to accomplish man's peace with God, atonement was necessary. 
war needed to be waged against sin and against the effects of sin and against the bondage of sin. And so sacrifice was necessary. We needed the Lamb of God to suffer in our place, once and for all satisfying the wrath of God. And this is our greatest need, isn't it? I mean, you consider all the things we need. We need air. We need food. We need companionship. right? We need all these things. But our greatest need is to be reconciled to God. And God made a way. This is also our neighbor's greatest need. Because every sinner stands condemned by God's law. God doesn't just give a wink and a smile to sin and to the sinner. No, he burns like a flame that increases in heat with every log that's heaped upon it. And for the sinner who has not believed in Christ, who has not turned to Christ in faith, for the sinner there is nothing to prevent God's just and holy wrath from consuming them and condemning them to an eternity in hell. Nothing except God himself in the flesh the second person of the Trinity, who took our sin upon him and who took the holy and just wrath of God in our place in order that we would be redeemed, in order that we wouldn't have to pay that debt ourselves. And he would do this as a substitute for everyone who would repent and believe in him. God so loved the world that he sent his only, his unique son for this purpose, excuse me, for this purpose, to ransom and redeem a people for himself. Now John says that uh, this Lamb of God, Jesus, takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you think back on, on the lessons that we've had leading up to this point, I've tried to warn us that in the gospel according to John, the word world has at least 10 different definitions which makes it a very complicated word to interpret. Uh, So how do we know what he means when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Well, the general rule of thumb that was was advanced and refined by the Puritans and by by the Reformers before them um, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. What does that mean? It means that we recognize, just like the Reformers and the Puritans recognized, that some verses, some passages are more difficult to understand and some are easier to understand. And thus they develop the idea that any and every other, uh, any and every passage must be interpreted in light of the rest of Scripture. Because we have the idea that, uh, that God is harmonious with himself and the, thus the word of God cannot contradict itself. So in passages where clarity is lacking, and clarity is lacking almost every time you see the word world in the gospel according to John. So every time there's there's clarity lacking, we rely on passages in which clarity is abundant. Uh, So when we apply these Uh, When we apply apply this principle to these words, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we have to harmonize those words with other passages in Scripture. So here's the important part. 
Here's, here's where you, you, you want to pay attention. There's perfect harmony between the statement that Jesus takes away the sins of the world and Jesus' statement at the Last Supper when he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. See, the, the, the world and the many are talking about the same group of people. And we understand who those people are when we consider the words of the angel who told Joseph of Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. So who is the world? It's the many. Who are the world and the many? It's his people. It's his people. It's everyone who comes to him in faith, believing in him. Right? And the answer to that question gives us the answer to what John means when he says that Jesus takes away the sin of the world here. And the answer is that it's the redeemed. It's all who would believe in Christ. See, Jesus was not a universalist. That is, he, he didn't believe that everybody was going to be saved. He never taught that everyone would be saved. And, and the Bible never teaches that everyone is going to be saved. Rather, Jesus warned of the reality of hell for many for many, Jesus said this in Matthew 7.13. He said, The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Who's he talking about there? He's saying that there are many who claim to be Christians. Never mind the world, people who don't even claim to be Christians. There are many who are on this road to destruction. So the atonement of Christ redeems a particular and specific people. And Christ is the substitutionary atonement on their behalf, their behalf only. He didn't bear the, the sin and the shame of those who continue to rebel against him, who never come to him in faith. This is what we call the doctrine of limited or particular atonement. The mystery, though, and the beauty of salvation is that all who come to Christ, placing saving faith in Him, faith that trusts in Him alone for salvation, will have all of their sins taken away, will have all of their sins atoned for. That's the gospel. And that's the clear teaching of Scripture in its entirety. And that's why John the Baptist would not only point Jesus out, but it's why he would tell people, you need to be following him. He's the one you want to follow. Because John knew what was necessary for the redemption of his followers and his own disciples. So, so why does he say that the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world? John is, is considering the, the word world. But he also, I think, may have had the idea of uh, Abraham's covenant promises in mind. Remember what God said to Abraham. He said, and I will bless those who bless you and, those, and, and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this was in contrast to the idea that the Messiah would only save ethnic Israel. But there's another fuller sense in which we have to understand this statement. And that is that Jesus will take away all the sin of the world in the physical sense, the world in, in, in the physical sense, the whole earth. In the end, those who refuse to come to Christ in faith, in the end, those who refuse to place faith in Christ 
will be cast into judgment forever. And the earth will be replaced by a new heavens and by a new earth in which sin is found no more. Revelation 22.3 gives us this promise of what is to come on that day. It says there will no longer be any curse. Why is there no curse? Because there's no sin. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. And what are we to do with that information, with all that, according to John the Baptist? We're to behold him. We're to behold this Lamb of God. We are to set our eyes and our hearts and our minds on Christ. Don't look to me. Look to him. Don't look to your, to your own works. Don't look to your own good deeds. Look to him. Don't look at your own ethnic or your own religious heritage. Look to Christ. Because he alone will save every single sinner who looks to him in faith. And the rest of what John says here rests on all that, that reality. John testifies to why he said that. It wasn't just a wild guess. No, he knew. He knew because of what he had seen, what God had revealed to him. He says, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Which is, by the way, what we saw him say back in uh, chapter 1, verse 15. He continues saying, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. He goes on to say, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So how did John know who Jesus was? Because the Father had revealed Jesus to him. Because of what had happened when John baptized Jesus. He had seen the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove. And he had heard the voice of the Father from heaven saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So those are two witnesses, by the way. In, in, uh, in Jewish law, you needed two witnesses for anything, right? So here you go, two witnesses, the Father and the Spirit, testifying to who exactly Jesus Christ is. And John the Baptist could not help but believe. The evidence was clear. And by declaring that he was well-pleased with his Son, God the Father was confirming the righteous perfection of Christ. He was declaring that Jesus, his Son, had never once sinned that he had fulfilled every single last requirement of the law, unlike any other person in human history. He had continually and never failingly loved the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he had loved his neighbor. And he did these things continually. Two things that you and I fail to do every second of our existence. Because as we said a few weeks ago, there's never, we understand that there's never been a time when we could say that our love for God was on par with the love that Jesus had for the Father. We can, we can understand that, that there's never been a time in our lives when we can say we could not possibly have loved God more than we did in that moment. No, there's, there's always room for loving him more. And we don't even come close to loving him as Jesus loved the Father. 
So these are two things that we fail miserably at, continually at. But Jesus did not. That's the good news. Jesus did not fail. And thus the Father was well pleased with him. See, for a lamb to qualify to be a sacrifice, it had to be unblemished. See, man's tendency would be to say, well, let's take the defective ones and, and, and we'll offer those. And the good ones, you know, we can sell them, we can, we can breed them and, and make more of them so that we can make more money. But God's requirement is perfection. And that's what the requirement of an unblemished lamb was supposed to remind them of and what it should remind us of. It reminded the people that God would not even accept the slightest sin, the slightest defect, the slightest blemish. But the Lord Jesus Christ was perfect. He was perfect. He never sinned. And thus, He alone qualified and qualifies to be our substitute See, and, and this is beautifully summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism. Hudson, do you know the answer to last week's question? Okay, we're going to get to it. So th- this, is, this is something that we see in, in, in the great catechisms from the, uh, the Protestant Reformation, including the Heidelberg Catechism. In fact, uh, I- even in our question for today, uh, which I believe you can find in your bulletins. Let's, let's start with question 12. Question 12, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? And the answer is God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Question 13, can we make this payment ourselves? The answer, certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Question 14, can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No, to begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. So question 15, which is in your bulletin today, is what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? And the answer is one who is a true and righteous human, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also true God. So let me ask you this. Why, why do we go through the Heidelberg Catechism together? Why, why do we do that every week? Why do we encourage our kids to memorize the answers? I mean, ultimately, the, the, the big answer is that we want our kids to be saved. And to be saved, you know, they should understand and, and, and believe these things. They have to understand them so that they will believe these things. And we, we trust uh, that God is doing his work, that God can work and indeed is working both faith and understanding in their hearts Uh, through these questions, through the Heidelberg Catechism and their memorization of the answers. But friends, our kids aren't the only ones who need this information. See, our, our neighbors do too. Our unbelieving neighbors do too. They too must look to Christ. And when when they do, they'll need to understand that God is holy and that they are not. That God requires Righteous perfection, which they don't have. A righteousness that is received not by our own works, not by our own deeds, but a righteousness that is received by looking to Christ, coming to Him in faith, believing that salvation is received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
And when a person does that, God credits, he he transfers or imputes Christ's perfect, sinless righteousness to the believer, to the person who puts faith in Christ. So Jesus' life and redeeming work demand a response from us, don't they? They demand that we trust in him alone for salvation because we understand that we're sinners, that we've broken the law, and we continually break the law, but that Jesus hasn't. So all this demands that we we trust in him alone for salvation as as our substitute. It demands that we understand that he is the only Savior, that there is no other way, there is no other Savior. And if his life and his work demand that we look to him and, and refer to him as, as Savior, his nature, being fully God, demands that we exalt him and obey him as Lord. And that's exactly what we see going on with John the Baptist in this passage. And I pray it's what you would see and what you would believe and how you would respond as well. Because if we, like John the Baptist, see that Jesus is worthy of all honor and and glory, then we must see the importance of doing what John did. We will tell others about Jesus. We will urge our neighbors whom we are instructed to love to turn from their sin Not to deny their sin, but to come to the Lamb of God who will take their sin away from them as far as east is from the west. How far is that? Infinity. Further than than our minds can fathom. This is what the love of God and the love of neighbor would have us do, friends. It would have us love God enough to proclaim his truth and to glorify his only son, and would have us love our neighbors enough to share the good news of the gospel, the good news of redemption. And I understand how uncomfortable that can make us. It can be really uncomfortable to tell somebody that the only way for them to be reconciled to God is by believing in Christ, turning from their sin and believing in Christ. It makes us uncomfortable, it makes us even maybe a little bit queasy as we even think about the idea but let me, let me quote James Montgomery Boyce on this. He said, A Christian will never be an effective witness if he is placing either himself or his own needs first in his thinking. End quote. And he goes on to, he actually goes on to conclude. Uh, he says, we, we cannot really show love to the other person, which is the essence of witnessing, if we are not placing his needs before our own. End quote. What need might we have that would prevent us from witnessing a need for comfort a need for acceptance a need for people to like us well those are legitimate needs but what he's saying here and what i think the bible testifies to is that we need to love somebody enough that we would forsake our needs for their greater good so i leave you with this as people who have been redeemed by christ by the the, the shed blood of the Lamb of God. We should be a people who both walk the walk and talk the talk. The story is told of the famous missionary, William Carey, that he once was criticized for his desire to spread the gospel at all costs. He was a shoe cobbler by trade, and 
As such, he was confronted by a friend who saw him forsaking his duty as a shoe cobbler for the gospel. His friend said, said this to him as, as William Carey had been talking about taking a missionary trip or going to be a missionary to India. He said, I want to speak to you seriously. And Carey said, well, what, what's up? What is it? And his friend argued, by your going about to people as you do, you are neglecting your business. If you only attended to making shoes more than you do, you would be all right and would get on and proper. But as it is, you are simply neglecting your business. And Carrie responded by saying, neglecting my business. My business is to extend the kingdom of God, and I only cobble shoes to pay the expenses. Friends, like Carrie, our our first business in life, our greatest calling in life, should be to testify to God's redemptive work by walking the walk. Yes, absolutely. But if we don't, also talk the talk. If we don't verbally articulate the good news, what happens when you see somebody who's who's just nice and pleasant and, and good? You think highly of that person, but it doesn't cause you to have saving faith in whatever they believe. And so if anything, if we don't verbally articulate the good news, all our lives will do is to bring a false impression of our own moral goodness, and it'll falsely bring glory to ourselves if we just walk the walk without talking the talk. Or it's possible that nobody will even notice, and nobody will even care. Think of it like this. If I'm in a restaurant and I realize that there's a fire in the kitchen that's going to burn down the whole building, and I get up and I quietly and politely leave, who's going to notice? Who's going to care if I just casually walk out? In fact, you might say, you know, after the building's burned down, you might say, well, you you did the right thing in in getting up and, and getting out, but what kind of a person wouldn't say anything to the countless other people who were left trapped in there who were burned alive. Friends, the only way to know even the most fundamental things about yourself is to know God. And the only way to know God is to know Christ. If you have never seen yourself as a sinner who has offended a holy God, you have never truly known yourself. And if that's you, I'm here to tell you that the proverbial restaurant is on fire. It is all going to burn down. And there is one narrow door through which you must escape. And that is Christ Jesus. You must flee to him. You must behold him and turn to him in faith. And I urge you not to wait. I urge you not to wait and harden your heart. Believe. Turn to Christ. Call upon his name in faith. And you will be saved. But if you've done that, if you've trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, let me urge you in a different direction. Let me urge you to let your light shine. Let your life speak for itself, yes, absolutely, but may God also, by the work and the power and the conviction of his Holy Spirit within us, give us just an overwhelming sense of a burden to share the good news with our neighbors that we might see that their greatest need is to repent and to believe in Jesus.
Now, some people say, I'm not even sure how to preach the gospel. Let me let you in on a little secret here. The best way to learn how to preach the gospel is to preach it to yourself daily. Daily. So may we boldly bear witness to the world around us that there is a Savior. Christ Jesus the Lord, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because as people who believe in Jesus, as people who know Jesus, one of our primary tasks, one of our primary responsibilities is the Great Commission to point others to Jesus. May we do it graciously, motivated by nothing but love for God and love for our neighbors. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we confess to you that we sin against you constantly in thought, word, and deed. We sin in what we do. We sin in what we don't do. We don't love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves We love comfort and long for comfort more than we long for people to know you so often. Oh, Father, were it not for your grace, we would have no chance to be in your presence, to have fellowship with you. And so we thank you that you sent Jesus to redeem a people, to take away the sin of all who would turn to him in faith. We pray, Lord, that you would give us boldness, give us compassion, give us love for our neighbors, that we would obey the Great Commission, going forth and sharing the good news of Christ. We thank you that the blood of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, atoned for sin once and for all. We thank you that His sacrifice was perfect and sufficient for your purposes to be fulfilled in him. And we pray, Lord, O Father, that our lives would glorify Christ, but that we would not only glorify him with our lives, but also with our lips, that others would believe as well, and that Christ would be glorified in that. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.